as long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. We've been hearing ups and downs about the real estate market, housing going in interesting directions these days, and it's also causing some ripple effects to other neighboring markets. And joining us on 710 KURV to talk a little bit about this, Coco Shelburne is a real estate expert, and she has the the story on this. So what's been going on with the real estate markets? So good to be here, Zach. Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating because we are seeing trends, and one of the trends we're seeing is that businesses, small businesses, particularly in transportation and in restaurant ownership, those who operate those were unable, more than 35% were unable to make their rent payment for their business in the month of June. And that is up 41% since May. So we're seeing this huge incline and increase. And what we know happens is when businesses can't make their rent payment on their business, the next thing they don't do is make payments to their employees and when they don't make payments to their employees usually we see well the next month is they don't make payments on their homes so we're seeing kind of this back and forth effect it's it kind of goes along with the same thing with the quiet quitting so we see all this happening at once in the conversion market with high inflation it's interesting you mentioned that uh the quiet quitting but we'll get to that in a second i'm curious what's been driving the housing market up and down Recently, I know it's a, it's a lot of different factors, but they seem to there seems to be a revolving door of which one's taking the lead at any given point in time. Well, it has been up until probably about April, where the the average buyer was buying over the list price, well without any contingencies or what we call the as ifs, as long as is the house condition, so to speak. They're paying over their list price and moving forward no matter what. And then the interest rates started to go up. But I think what really has driven it is the absolute high inflation rate. People are scared. They're seeing the stock market move. They're seeing everything that they had previously thought was safe shift. And now they're thinking to themselves, what the heck am I going to do? So that was the trend that we had a kind of a hard stop in June where things were falling apart in the housing market. And then slowly it started to go back up. What we're seeing as an effect is that sellers who don't actually have to sell are holding off to see what happens in the market. Our guest is Coco Shelburne. She's a real estate expert, and we're talking about the elements and factors and forces that are moving the housing market in all sorts of directions and the way that that's been affecting other businesses. As far as... when, Just a general question, I guess. When you have uh, the hot buyer's market and the seller's market, how quickly do these windows open and close normally before before COVID and before, you know, with the recovery and all that? Com- let's uh, compare and contrast the two for right now. Great question. So it used to take several months, but it was always 
more sensitive to what was happening in the news. And as we know, with the, the Dodd-Frank Act and with, with the changes that happened in the world economic crisis, that had taken place. Everything was on a high and then it suddenly stopped and the banks had problems. Everyone sort of had this major crisis take place and things stopped. So usually it took a couple of months, longer, closer to six months to see the shift was more slow. In this case right now, I think we're seeing as a public or seeing a general population who's a little bit more shell shocked, slightly PTSD to what's happening uh, out there and a little bit more afraid to make moves if they're not sure what's going to happen. What's interesting though is that there's this niche market still out there in real estate that's super safe in comparison to other places and that's picking up. So it's just a fascinating place to be. Is it everybody? Is it all across the nation or are there, uh, or I mean, I guess I should backtrack as far as the, the hot spots in America, the places that are quickly growing and uh, have been big business boons recently, have they been getting affected by any of this? They have. It's, what's happened is we're just not seeing a crazy hot market. Buyers are having a more successful time going in with more confidence. For example, if you're talking about LA or New York, where the properties are into the millions easily without question, it's just sort of right there. You're talking what was happening four or five months ago was $200,000 over the list price and take it or leave it kind of mentality. And you were in competition with maybe 20 or 30 people at a time, sometimes more, all depended on what was going on. And they were not taking anyone who wanted to finance. So there was much more scrutiny involved versus now they're a little bit more gentle. So I would say that some markets are always and consistently going to stay the way they are. It's more in the middle of the country, the more mid locations that we're seeing more of the, the spikes, but at the same time, or spikes in sales, but we're also seeing that those numbers are relatively small percentage. They're same percentage, but the price points are smaller. So it's a little easier to manage as a buyer. Coco Shelburne is a real estate expert. She's our guest on News Talk 710 KURV. And we're talking about real estate markets and the businesses that are affected by all this as it's been slowing down. I I read a few stories recently concerning, you know, a lot of places are going through droughts right now. And in the state of Texas, it's, it's not safe from that at all. There's been a lot of droughts happening. But uh, landscaping. Wow. Landscapers have been having a hard time figuring out how to do their job because there's all these uh, water restrictions now. And so they've been, um, their industry has been shifting. I was wondering if you had heard anything in particular about that because it's close. It's not necessarily real estate, but it's close to real estate because you have to decorate the outside of the lawn. You know, it gets, it gets in part with all the building and maintenance and design work of, of your home. Yeah, you're right on it. Zach, you're right on it. It is absolutely true. And landscapers are having to be more creative at this point. I think there was a little bit of hesitation, frustration, those who are ready to change what they're up to. And I think that's true with so many people, and especially within what your asset is. And that's what I love about real estate for people. You can mostly control what you're doing with that versus perhaps in the stock market where you're just, hey, I hope they make great decisions. I have nothing to do with it. Right? With the landscape. <laughs> It's always it's always bad news when they decide to do something to your particular part of the market, right? <laughs> and it's usually in the form of good news. Like, hey, we got some good news for you. We're going to come and fix things. Oh no, please God, don't. 
<laughs> could you not fix things? Right, you got it, exactly, exactly. And it's so true. So I say for the landscapers, what we're seeing is we're being, we're trying to give them more ideas. We're trying to give them more places where they can design and we can recreate and work out ways to be effective and still have beautiful spaces. So if they're not ready for that, it is going to be tough. Well, we can work together and collaborate on these things. It'll be fine. Coco Shelburne is our guest on your 956 Drive Home on 710KURV. She's a real estate expert. And you had mentioned earlier about uh, the way some of the ways that small businesses have been affected. There's many, many, many elements and factors affecting them with the job market and people coming and going. And you mentioned quiet quitting. I've been hearing a lot about that. Let's talk about that for a sec. So what have you heard so far? Quiet quitting is kind of the, the next wave of I'm out of here. Right. It's like, yeah. Um, but some people are, they're doing it a couple ways. They're kind of testing the limits and we're seeing like the Gen Z, the Gen Alphas who are, are thinking about, well, I was locked down for all this time and I was away from people. So this socialization and connection to work ethic or what we, they've been, our previous generations have been connected to the work ethic that was defined has now been a bit broken. It's not the same as it was. So people are seeing more value. The, the tendency is that the belief is the Gen Z, the Gen Alphas are saying to themselves, um, I don't really need to be here. I don't really like it here. And I can be a nomad and maybe have a, a gig oriented life and get, get out of town. But until you fire me, I'll just take the check. <laughs> it, it sounds like we're starting to admit out loud now things we've been thinking for quite some time. We've just had enough. The, the Rona changed everything. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, do you have a, a, a website? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, you're always welcome to visit me at edgelandinternationalrealestate.com. Um, I also have the MVP.life that's coming out shortly. It should be out from the next week or two. And that's basically a, a different way to invest and a different way to just see what's happening in the market, whether it's local or it's global in an emerging markets that are relatively safe in comparison to, I don't know what Nike's going to do this week. And I hope my stock does well. Wow, you just cover everything, and you do a great job of it. You did a great job of breaking everything down and explaining it to us. Thanks for your time, as usual. Coco Shelburne, real estate expert, joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710-KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710-KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. There's a lot of great, interesting things in Texas uh, concerning energy. Lots of things floating around and some new rules put out by the Texas Railroad Commission. Also, they're supposed to be sealing up a lot of the 
oil wells in Texas that aren't in use anymore. Joining us on 710KURV to talk about this, to give us the details, is Tim Snyder from Matador Economics. So the, on, the, on the case of the oil wells being sealed up, what's the, what's the deal there? Is that really what's happening? Yeah, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of steps to this whole thing. And, and you know, the, the issue that we're dealing with here is um, a part of that infrastructure bill that was passed by, um, it was actually the Schumer uh, Mansion infrastructure bill. Uh, they put some provisions in there to uh, uh, try to cap, uh, a, you know, additional wells. Right now, the Texas Railroad Commission uh, has been tasked with that responsibility. Um, they've identified a, a total of about 500 wells that, uh, I say 500, 800 wells that they're uh, looking to cap that are that are either abandoned, and that's a that's a there's a number of wells that are out there that are just completely and totally abandoned, or they're non-producing. Um, there's there's various nuances with each one of those uh, conditions. Uh, the Texas Railroad Commission has been involved had been involved in this for quite some time. Um, there's really two categories. There's there's um, the plugged and abandoned or what we call permanently abandoned or the TA dwell, which is temporarily abandoned. And um, we have to be very careful that as we, uh, as we move forward with all of these conditions that we don't kind of put everything all in, you know, painted everything with the same broad brush. Um, that's, that's the big concern that we're looking at. Um, there's uh, $25 million that have been allocated right now for the state of Texas to do this. Um, they're, they're targeting, obviously, methane emissions, and that's that's very important. So as we look at what our opportunities are, um, you know, if, if you believe in this great conundrum of, of climate change and all the things that they have to look at, they find a, they find a, a booger bear around every corner, and this, this may very well be uh, one more of those. Joining us on 710KURV, Tim Snyder from Matador Economics. These oil wells that are getting sealed, is there, uh, I guess let's go back into the process of what happens. These guys set up shop, they drill the well, they exhaust that spot, and then it, it just sits there. And this is what um, they're, they're going to seal up, or is there a looser definition of what is really a is. well in no longer use? Yeah, there really is that. that. One of the things that we look at is it could be, let's let's build a scenario. Um, a, a producer has an ENP, an exploration production company, and I'm not I'm talking about the smaller guys. The bigger guys pretty much take care of their own business. This is the smaller producers, the wildcatters that we're talking about. Um, let's say they've got a plot of land and they they have been permitted to be able to drill two wells, so they start on both wells. They drill both wells. Uh, well, A produces. 200 gallons a day, uh, 200 barrels a day, and well B produces uh, 35 barrels per day. So in order to maximize their profit potential, their revenue stream, they temporarily abandon, they TA the smaller well, the one that does 35 barrels a day. They spend their time on the big well. Okay. Well, let's say the big well comes up with a problem and, you know, down the road and all of a sudden its production um, uh, uh, profile begins to drop. So they think, well, let's, let's see what, if there was an enhancement or a change in well B and let's go see what they do. So they may stop on well A or they may continue to go on well A, but they'll go back and pick up. So you can't necessarily use the same broad brush on 
all the wells because it's not all of them are non-producers. Some of them, um, are, there's going to be folks that are in pieces that go out there and they run out of money. They get a, a well halfway done or they get in, in, into production and they don't have the funds to uh, complete the well. There's a lot of those in a lot of different categories. Um, the, we're hopeful that the Texas Railroad Commission will focus on those wells that have um, that and in for a long period of time. We want those long-term wells that have been abandoned and, and non-producing to be the first ones that they go after. And then let's have some, some uh, discussion about what we do with the additional wells. Our guest is Tim Snyder with Matador Economics, our guest on 710KURV. We're talking about the wells in Texas that have been abandoned and they're getting sealed up by the Texas Railroad Commission. Uh, these uh, We're hoping that these... Uh, Abandoned wells have been exhausted for their resources, and effectively, they're not useful to us anymore. But what happens when they do seal them, and we could have gotten something out of it? Are, is there a way that they check them, or is this just, hey, the they, site's abandoned, cut and dry, you have to close it up? The No. Um, they can go back and reopen. It's very expensive to be able to do that. And there's there's a number of things. There's permits and all kinds of other things that they'd have to be involved in, Zach, but but uh, we can't do that. It's just not favorable. Uh, it's really not economically feasible to be able to go back and reopen a um, uh, a will a well that uh, has been has been shut in. In other words, poured concrete down the shaft because they'd have to pull those extremely heavy uh, that extremely heavy drill stem that's got concrete in it and make sure that the uh, casing stays in shape and that we don't lose the integrity of the well walls and all that stuff. A lot of pieces that go into that. Yeah, it sounds very complicated. Uh, let's talk about something else that the Texas Railroad Commission uh, has been putting forth recently. I saw in the Texas Tribune yesterday that gas companies are going to face fines up to $1 million for the weatherization issue, which I thought was interesting. It starts at a $5,000 fine, and it goes all the way up to a $1 million. And there's been a few more rules put in place. What can you tell me about that? Well, what they're trying to do is, is you know, if we, it, it, well, first of all, let's let's hearken ourselves back to uh, February of, was it 2020 or 2021, when we had the big freeze, okay, yeah. and all the trouble during uh, Valentine's Day of that year. We had a lot of wells that shut off, we had producers that just stopped producing. Let's talk about when we have hurricanes coming to the Gulf of Mexico, we, we pull all the workers off of the wells because it's not dangerous to to have them on those oil wells and on the oil rigs uh, out in the Gulf of Mexico, and you got 50, 70 foot seas. Um, that's that's always problematic. So we pull our people off of there. What the what they're trying to do is they're trying to force, and I'm telling you, it's got the industry in a tether. Um, they're trying to force the responsibility for continued production for natural gas and crude oil, specifically natural gas, because that's primarily our heating. Um, uh, source, and it also generates 35% of our electricity requirement here in the state of Texas by itself. Um, so if you look at that, they're trying to put the onus on the producer of the uh, natural gas and not on terrible policies by uh, the state of Texas and ERCOT and the uh, PUC, Public Utility Commission, because the fact of the matter is, is, is we have built a system that is not prepared for what we're trying to do to the system. And they're trying to make the oil and gas guys, the gas guys mostly, 
and I'm talking natural gas. So for people that don't understand the difference, we're talking natural gas here that we're trying to make them the bad guy. And so this has got people really confused because this could cause mass bankruptcies. This could cause mass confusion. And we're doing this at a time when we don't have the infrastructure or the ability to move power. If we talk solar or wind from those big wind fields that we have out in West Texas, because there's just not the capacity on the line to be able to produce, to, to move more than what we're currently doing right now. It's a fool's errand. There was a discussion. We're, we're talking with Tim Snyder from Matador Economics. We're talking about the new rules that have been put out by the Texas Railroad Commission, or they're going to be enforced by the Texas Railroad Commission on uh, natural gas energy providers for uh, these new rules in light of the winter storm. As far as little discussions that have been happening with some state representatives, we I heard on... We were at, actually, the Texas Tribune's uh, into the interim discussion, and energy was brought up. One of the state reps had said they had talked to somebody who's in the business. He's got family in the business, and so they've got friends in the business, that when it comes to weatherization, you have to know which one to prepare for, and you, and you, don't necessarily, you can't necessarily prepare for both at the same time. And that there needs to be some place where we kind of meet in the middle on uh, for, where government has to meet up with the these energy companies in this case for for weatherization so i guess let's start with what does it take to weatherize for the heat versus the cold then we'll take it from there uh, yeah it's insulation among other things but let's talk about uh, about i'm a i'm an applied economist and so what we do in applied economics is we have discussions about you know where reality actually lives where the producer of natural gas, you know, can weatherize for winter and then also be prepared in case we have an overly hot summer for a, or a prolonged hot period like we're dealing with because it's two different animals. And logically speaking, what it tells us is that we have to have more natural gas production. That's the simple answer. The state legislature maybe to a certain degree and a lot on the left, the more green side of things, don't like that answer because they want less natural gas, okay? So they want to be able to put the, the onus and the financial burden plus a financial penalty on top of the natural gas company for not being able to do both while not allowing him to increase his production, which is the only natural solution. You'll have some wells that are, are, are prepared uh, for winterization to be taking an extra load, a peak load when it's extremely cold and you have some wells that are prepared for summarized weather and taking prolonged periods of heat to be able to manage that. Two different animals, two different scenarios requiring, believe it or not, more natural gas. That's the reason why I will tell you people like Elon Musk is very bullish on natural gas and it's great for my friends in the valley oh yeah you know what i think i saw that recently elon musk had said something along the lines of hey listen i know you guys want to go green but we really need you know gas like right he now did. you know <laughs> this is the guy that owns tesla i mean come on you know? <laughs> 
Yeah, guys, I want to sell electric cars, but... (laughs) Except for the fact that I want you to be able to continue to afford them, and so I can sell them to you, as opposed to the government government coming back and telling me, uh, Elon Musk, that he must produce a cheaper version that everybody can get forced to, that the government that will government will subsidize, then out out the window goes his profitability. This is a this is an economic balance discussion that unfortunately is being managed by a bunch of fools. Well, Tim, I think we'll leave it there for right now. Thanks a lot for stopping by and, and breaking it down for us. Tim Snyder from Matador Economics. Uh, sign up for his newsletter, actually. Where's the website at, Tim? It's www.matadoreconomics.com, or you can send me an email at tim at matadoreconomics.com, and I'll get you started. That's Tim Snyder from Matador Economics joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. News Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. And we mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news. On News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have a active multiple In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. URV and KURV.com. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. You know, it's been a real rough uh, governor's race because he had a real rough, uh, Abbott had a real rough primary. He's going up against Bethel and just about, oh, he's walking on a knife's edge right now. Now, I don't say that to defend him or justify anything. I say that because factually that's essentially the case. So uh, he's going under a lot of scrutiny as he's in his, in this election season and everything he says is going over, is, is being uh, evaluated with a fine tooth comb. And one of those things is something he said yesterday that it would be unconstitutional to increase the minimum age to buy assault rifles, air quotes assault rifles, I'm sorry, from uh, 18 to 21 years old. And this is something that he caught a lot of heat for over the weekend when he was out on uh, Twitter playing basketball and stuff with some mm-hmm. of the kids in the neighborhoods as he's block walking. And some of the protesters are like, hey, you know, uh, some parents don't get to play with their kids like that because of Uvalde. I'm sure that'll change his mind. Yeah. Being hassled like that. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, joining us on 710KURV to kind of get into the constitutional slash unconstitutionality of of, uh, some of these things that the gun control people want. Uh, Edwin Walker from U.S. Law Shield joins us now on your 956 drive home. So I guess we'll start off with the initial... Um, constitutionality of raising the minimum age to buy a weapon. Uh, can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, and and this the current the current scrutiny for this comes from the uh, from so from the New York the recent New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Broom case, where the Supreme Court basically set forth the standard for a constitutional firearms regulation uh, by examining through this historical context. And if you look at the historical context of using age to regulate the possession of a firearm, the purchase and possession, it always has been just 18. So it was it was always 18 for any weapon. And this goes back to kind of the 18-year-olds having the capacity to contract to buy a weapon. It wasn't really kind of a weapons uh, thing specific. 
Um, but it was it was looked at as 18 is an adult, 18 has the capacity to contract. If an 18-year-old can go buy a car, then an 18-year-old can go buy a gun. This was slightly altered in 1968 with the original Gun Control Act, which said that now you have to be 21 to purchase a handgun, but the age for purchasing a rifle or shotgun was left at 18, and it always has been 18. And this kind of goes back to, like I said, they have the capacity contract, Obviously, they have the capacity to enter into the military. And so 18 sort of historically has been established as the age. And any derivation from that will have to meet this new constitutional standard that was outlined in Bruin. And that was the basis for a federal court just last week in Dallas holding that the constitutional carry law, which prohibits uh, 18, 19, and 20-year-olds from carrying handguns, uh, was unconstitutional in that regard. That basically there's no constitutional basis for saying individuals who are 21 and above can carry, but adults who are 18, 19, 20-year-olds can't. And so that's what Governor Abbott was basing his reasoning on, is that there's no, that basically establishing the age at something above what has been recognized historically as the age of, of adulthood is just arbitrary and capricious and therefore unconstitutional. Our guest is Edwin Walker from U.S. Law Shield. We're, we're talking about the, the the constitutionality of raising the age to, to buy a weapon from 18 to 21 as proposed by some gun control activists. Davis, ranking your question? Uh, this Davis, as he says, uh, if, if 18 is the age that's been set because that's the age at which you can contract for something, then how do you, how do they raise the drinking age as they have in the past, 21, I don't know what it is now in Texas, but uh, they've, made a, they've made a distinction there. So why can't... Yes, and that is, and that, you know, that's something a lot of people disagreed with whenever it happened back in the, uh, back in the mid-80s. Um, and that's sort of been established. And, you know, I wouldn't say that that could completely escape constitutional muster. But what most people will point to is that there is an express individually recognized constitutional right to keep and bear arms, which the Supreme Court has always interpreted as wear, bear and carry. And that necessarily includes the ability to obtain, which is the ability to purchase. So that is an express right that's written into the Constitution, whereas you, know, you don't really have a right to drink. To drink so beer, yeah. That, that, is one of those, that is one of those areas that would be left to the uh, state police powers, which are the powers to uh, okay. regulate the health, safety, and welfare of the community. All right. Yeah, uh, Abbott's been getting uh, heat for not doing anything uh, to uh, aid the, the gun control crowd, or appease them, I should say. And uh, one of the things that they've been saying is, well, you really do have the power to do it. You could do something about it. You're just too chicken to do it. If, if what, say, let's just, the devil's advocate, let's just say that he really wanted to do something. Like, it, the, the powers of the governor, are, are, does, is he able to do anything like that? Well, keep in mind, the Texas governor can only do what's presented to him. So if the Texas legislature refuses to pass such a law, then he has no authority to arbitrarily enact it under his executive authority. So he only has the power to veto laws or sign laws, put them into effect. So this is really kind of premature, and I think what they're arguing is that he should call a special session mm -hmm. 
which is completely ridiculous. You only call special sessions for emergencies or for deadlines that are impending, like say that there was a federal deadline out there that said, you know, you must, the legislature must pass this law or else, you know, something good will not happen to them or something bad will happen to them. And that's just simply not the case. This is just a, you know, this is just a legislative issue, which will be debated in the legislature. And if raising the age to purchase a rifle, you know, passes uh, both houses of the Texas legislature at the end of May next year, then, you know, then it will become Greg Abbott's responsibility to either say, no, this is unconstitutional, I'm not signing it. Or, yes, I will sign it and allow the courts to pass upon its constitutionality. Yeah, that's okay. interesting. That's interesting, that's too, because even if Abbott did call a special session saying, hey, guys, get get something done on gun control, there's no guarantee that the legislature would actually go would, and do it. <laughs> they would. I, do you think they would? I don't think uh, they would do anything because I think they'd be Edward deadlocked. Walker from uh, U.S. Law Show. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that they would do it either because 18 has been recognized for so long as the age to purchase rifles and shotguns. And the thing about it is, to change it really is just arbitrary. And so, even if it were changed to 21, um, does that mean that the next time that there's a mass shooting involving a 22-year-old, that the, the gun control people are going to say, well, the rate should be 25? You know, and it, it's really just, it, it, this is really just uh, demagoguery on their part. It really is. Thank but you for saying that, if, by the way. If, but if I'm hearing you right, if I'm hearing you right, if I'm hearing you right, then if they pa- if the legislature passes a law to raise the age in Texas to purchase a, hand, a firearm of any sort to 21, they're going to get thrown out of court. That's going to be ruled unconstitutional in federal court, right? Well, I think it, well, I, I think that the fe- that a federal court that views that issue, if that were to become law, would use the same uh, logic, the same legal analysis that the district, the federal district court in Dallas recently used uh, to declare that law unconstitutional. Is that going to go up, that Dallas decision? Do you know enough to know if it's appealable? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of guaranteed. The thing about it is that the the attorney general is kind of in an odd position (laughs) because one of his mandates is to advocate for the laws that are passed by the legislature so he has a legal obligation to argue for it, but I would assume that if you asked his own personal opinion, that he probably would agree with the court. Uh, well, now, so, this will sound left field and uh, random, but I don't really... Th- there is some thinking uh, that boys, anyway, do not now mature until about 23, that, that adolescents lasts longer than it used to oh yeah that's been something floating around the internet well you know the the brain doesn't really develop fully until like 25 something like well i I don't know what they thought right 50 years ago but just now boys are just you know so i don't know how you prove that that to get to get the law changed that's that's, you know psychological or physiological debate but it really doesn't have you know there's no um you know there's no uh, you know, there's there's really no law that's analogous to this yeah. that says that that because of that the age should be raised to uh, you know to whatever they want to make it. I mean, it's completely arbitrary. Twenty one, twenty five, thirty. 
um, you know, it just happens to be whatever is the flavor of the day. Well, you could yeah, boys the, or girls. That's you could you could flip the script and say, hey, I, at eighteen you can become an adult and you can live in your own place, but you can't defend it or yourself. Well, if if eighteen is the age at which you can contract for something, then that that I understand one follows the other. But I don't know, how, and I don't know how you would ever prove that boys are knuckleheads until 23 <laughs> and, and shouldn't have the right to contract until then. So I will withdraw the question, Your Honor. Okay, well, you know, and that's interesting because under criminal law, you know, there there have been some sort of, uh, you know, there have been recognized ages of culpability. Uh, for example, you know, children under the age of 10 can't be charged with a crime. Yeah. Uh, children under the age of 17 have to be, pro- if they commit a crime, yeah. have to be processed through the juvenile system. If you're at 17, for criminal law purposes, you're considered to be an adult. Mm. So even though you're not 18, if you're 17 and you rob a liquor store, you're going to be prosecuted as an adult, even yeah. though you're 17. And the- uh, but if you, can, if you commit a murder, they can't give you the death penalty if you committed it when you're 17. So, you know, so there are a lot of of different ways of parsing the, yeah. you know, the law based upon the commission of a crime. But the thing about it is, is that those are, you know, those those are recognized crimes. Here, you would be completely fabricating a crime based solely upon somebody's age. And, uh, and it's a crime that implicates a constitutional right. Now, obviously, um, you know, this is where we, we kind of got into some weird areas whenever the law decided to start regulating possession of things instead of just straight up criminal conduct. So even though an 18 year old may possess a firearm, uh, they still are absolutely 100 percent prohibited from engaging in bad conduct with that firearm. You see, there's a, a perfectly logical and reasonable explanation for everything that happens in the legal world but it's I'm, getting, the one that, I'm the on one Davis. that's supposed to be the lawyer not hold, you hold on Davis Thank here you. I sit that uh, you see now I lost my train of thought thanks a lot Davis <laughs> it's always my fault yes yes it is because I was mid-sentence when you did that thanks a lot Edwin Walker from Thank US you. Law Show very very wonderful analysis you're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com Start your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day. And special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, guys. We'll let you know enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Now on to some stories across the great state of Texas. As you know, there is a gubernatorial election (laughs) happening this year. And in a couple of months, they're going to go head to head. The governor of the Lone Star State, Greg Abbott and Beto O'Rourke. But things, the landscape the environment as Patrick Svitek from the Texas Tribune who joins us now says the land is changing things are getting a little bit more complicated how so Patrick tell us about it hey good evening thanks for having me uh yeah if you look at you know the kind of outlook um that people had for this election uh maybe as recently as six months ago uh it was much more rosy for the Republicans it was looking like this was going to be a um 
a referendum on an unpopular uh, Biden presidency, uh, you know, that the issues that were going to be top of mind with the economy, public safety, border security. And I think polls show that those are still top issues for voters, but you've really had um, this, uh, if you're a Republican, this unwelcome distraction of the uh, Roe v. Wade decision and especially the fallout from it in Texas where, um, you know, we had this trigger law go into effect that, you know, banned almost all abortion in the wake of the decision. And so that has energized uh, Democrats. Um, and you can see it in, in some of the ways that Republicans are campaigning um, that this is an issue that they really still view as problematic, even though that that, you know, even though that decision um, came out, uh, you know, I think it was over two months ago at this point. Um, and so I think it, it's causing some races to be closer than expected um, heading out of this kind of traditional turning point of Labor Day. Yeah, this is Davis uh, Rankin, Patrick. What what are the tells? I mean, the Republicans are not going to say, boy, this thing's got us spooked. And uh, let me talk about it. What are the tells that they think this is a problem or could be a problem for them? Well, I think, if, you know, one of the most remarkable things we've seen is that even though, you know, this is, again, like I said, an over two month old news event, um, you know, we're still seeing Governor uh, Greg Abbott struggle with how to how to talk about it and specifically how to talk about the new laws, lack of exceptions uh, for rape victims. Um, you know, he's anytime he's, he's talked about it, he's ended up saying something um, that I think most people would at least call awkward. Um, and he doesn't seem very confident in speaking about it. So we saw last year he was asked about the lack of exceptions uh, for rape victims. And he said, well, we're just going to eliminate all rape in Texas. So that won't be uh, an issue. Um, well, there you and go. We saw, you know, you know, we saw uh, last week in a TV interview, he said that, well, rape victims can just take uh, emergency contraception like plan B to prevent the pregnancy. Yeah. And then over the weekend in another TV interview, uh, he said, we may have to clarify this law or something along that. It was a pretty vague statement. And so, you know, usually if you're a, a politician in a, a pretty competitive race yeah. or a remotely competitive race and it's a sensitive issue, you figure out a consistent message on it and you stick with it. And if you look at how he's talked about this, um, it seems like he's still struggling to land on a consistent message to deal with more sensitive parts of this law. So that's, to me, that's one of the big talented yeah. problematic issues for what this. 10-4. Our guest is Patrick Svitek from the Texas Tribune. We're getting an update from the campaign trail for the gubernatorial election. Another issue that has been raised, uh, outlined by you in your article, is the state of ERCOT. Where, where are we with that? Yeah, I mean, this is an issue where polling shows Texas Republicans are still really in a bad spot. Um, and this is, you know, related to the power grid. Uh, obviously, a lot of Texans still have traumatic uh, memories from uh, the outages that millions suffered um, in, t in the winter of 2021. Um, you know, the governor has made the case that everything that was needed to be done to prevent that from happening again was done during the last legislative sessions. Um, so far, we've, uh, you know, gotten through this summer uh, without any systemic problems with the grid. Um, but we did have a few, excuse me, a few conservation alerts that obviously set off, I think, a sense of, um, you know, understandable sense of uh, kind of PTSD uh, for Texans uh, who lost power in February 2021. And so there have been reminders this summer of that, of that trauma. And like I said, in polls, we continue to see that 
Texans, you know, voters disapprove of Abbott's handling of that issue. They don't believe the grid was, you know, quote, fixed, however you want to define that. And so that continues to be, um, I think, uh, kind of a, a second tier issue uh, in, the, in at least the governor's race right now. Has there been um, confidence in the grid? I know things are shaky, and I know the, the winter storm is still, you know, fresh in a lot of people's minds. But have have there been out of all of the things that Abbott has done? I forgot the name of the guy that he appointed, but he uh, to uh, oh man, this guy was getting almost a million dollars in a contract or something like that to oversee the grid and to make sure that it was going to be taken care of and stuff. Uh, Peter Lake, I think his name was. The new Pews, uh, the new uh, public utility commission chair, oh, or no, Pablo Vegas, like- Pablo Vegas, Pablo Vegas. That guy was the guy that was getting almost a million dollars in a contract. Right. Yeah, I mean, all of Abbott's appointments to these positions, you know, have been under heavy scrutiny um, because there's just, you know, in the past, no one paid attention uh, to, you know, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas or the Public Utility Commission. I mean, these were places that did not draw headlines as long as basically the lights were kept on. People didn't really have any reason to scrutinize these appointments that much. But after 2021, um, that all changed. And so you are seeing a lot more scrutiny on these appointments. Um, you're seeing, you know, Abbott through, you know, my, my colleague's own reporting at the Texas Tribune, you know, we've learned that Abbott has taken a really assertive role in the public messaging coming out of those agencies, which, you know, obviously raises, you know, uh, natural questions of political interference. If he's, you know, I- you know, interfering with getting official, timely and accurate information out to the public. Um, but that just shows, I think, you know, politically, how much, uh, you know, of a tight spot he's in here when it comes to the grid, because he knows that anytime, um, you know, it's in the headlines, it brings back really uh, bad memories for a lot of Texans. Um, and he was, you know, he was the governor at the time, just like he's governor now, and was the face of that um, really embarrassing moment in Texas history. You know, it was interesting, Patrick. Me and Davis were discussing the new ERCOT CEO, Pablo Vegas, like like he's the new Dak Prescott. Like this is like this is a sports hire, like a trade or something, you know? Just like wow, what's what's in his contract? He's getting a bonus for this. This is how yeah. this is what his salary is going to be and stuff. Like it was, it, it was nuts. Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, we never had the, you know, this was never a story before, right? And never was, <laughs> you know, a headline who was appointed to lead uh, any of these agencies or anything or any of these boards. So uh, but now it's all eyes on them. Patrick Svitek is from the Texas Tribune. He's joining us on your 956 Drive Home talking about the upcoming or the fast approaching governor's uh, election, I should say. And uh, what what are some of the other challenges that they'll be facing before November? Look, I think there are still, especially um, in suburban areas, um, one of the headwinds is the lack of new gun restrictions after the Evaldi shooting. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, we'll have to see statewide how this plays out. But I think in certain parts of Texas, um, that is an issue where Republicans are really um, up against some headwinds right now. Um, and again, if you just look at the, the statewide polling, not even you know specific to suburbs or not, I mean, statewide polling continually shows that, that voters in Texas want stricter gun laws. I mean, now there are some, you know, there are some proposals that get more support than others. For example, having universal background checks is always, is always more popular than just straight up, you know, banning any kind of weapon like an AR-15. Uh, but the bottom line is that when the question goes to voters, you know, do you think, uh, you know, gun laws in Texas need to be stricter right now? 
usually we see a plurality or majority say yes. And so that's something that I think Abbott still has to navigate. Obviously, since um, the Uvalde shooting, uh, we've had these, you know, we've had these legislative uh, committees. They've been at work preparing recommendations, but we haven't seen any, you know, obviously no special session, um, you know, that's that that has convened to pass, you know, new new laws or anything. Um, and even on something that, you know, is one of those proposals that garners significant support, which is raising the age to buy an assault rifle from 18 to 21. Abbott's resisted that. Um, you know, his most recent explanation was that recent federal, you know, recent court decisions have, have made that seem unconstitutional, uh, which, you know, legal experts don't entirely uh, agree on that interpretation of it. Um, and of course, you know, if you follow Texas politics in the past, you know that um, just because, you know, federal judges have struck down things doesn't mean that it's, you know, worth a shot to, to Texas leaders. I mean, we like to, you know, we like to, uh, the, you know, at least Republican leaders in Texas like to pass uh, constitutionally provocative laws. And so I think to a lot of folks, that explanation from Abbott um, was pretty, was pretty lame. And so I, you know, it's another issue, just like with the abortion issue, where I think he's trying to figure out uh, a effective counter argument to the Democrats heading into this fall and just hasn't found a consistent message. Um, I, he's really, you know, I think notably he's really, I've not seen him talk a lot recently about Beto works, um, you know, famous declaration in, in 2020, that he wants, or 2019, you know, that hell yes, he wants to take away your, your AK-47, your AR-15. It seems like Abbott has pulled back on attacking or work over that um, since the Uvalde school shooting, um, which may tell you where the political winds are blowing right now. Hey, real, real quick, Patrick, because we're up against a break, but have we heard anything extra from Mike Morath and that whole uh, what's wrong with teachers committee that Greg Abbott wanted I don't think so, although we have some reporters at the church who are covering that a little more closely than me, and so I don't want to speak too definitively. You got it. You got it. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Appreciate your time as usual. That's Patrick Zvitek from the Texas Tribune joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands, your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio, just say, Alexa, play 710 KURV. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV.